your Bibles, I invite you to take them with me, please, and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 21. Romans 16, 21. It's good to see you all this morning. I am sorry, Mr. Gaiman, I had to put him in the bind there. <clears throat> I will, uh, I just got to start drinking coffee up here, I guess. I just, I can't sing. <clears throat> My voice is full of phlegm. But thank you, Mr. Gaiman. I'm so sorry. He'll get me back, I can guarantee you. <laughs> um, I, uh, let's see here. Daniel, if you could stand and Maddie, and Ava. These three young people have graduated high school. Give them a hand. Woo! <laughs> All right. So, I would encourage you, if you don't know them, to get to know them. They do love the Lord, and um, I pray that they will serve Him the rest of their lives. And you can ask them what their plans are, and where they're headed, and and you can be a prayer warrior for them. Starting life in this world is not easy. And we need to be praying for these young people and thank the Lord for them and their parents. They're getting close to being empty nesters. One is, and one is going to be next year, I think. So, praise the Lord for them. Give them a hand. Praise the Lord. All right, Romans chapter 16 is our passage this morning. The Bible says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so does Lucas and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who write the letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. Corderus, the brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So, of all these names, there's only two or three that are being used today. Did you know, this is very interesting in studies this week, did you know that the Romans would call their firstborn Primus, their secondborn Secundus, their thirdborn Tertius, and their fourthborn, Cordus. And we have two of them there today. <laughs> How many glad they don't do that anymore? <laughs> Very interesting in this passage of Scripture, but if you remember about four weeks ago, we, we preached through the first part of chapter 16, which had a whole bunch of... And I picked on Gabe... And he had to articulate all those words, all those names, and they're so hard. And we can never get all of them right, but we realize that common people do supernatural things when they're in Christ. Amen? Amen? What a great truth. What a great truth. That truth is going on in this text, but there's even more to it now in that he we are serving one another. How many realize that every person in this room is a minister of God? 
We are. All of us are ministers of God. We serve other people. There's, I, I'm so tired of this attitude that, well, the pastor is the minister of God. No, Christians are ministers of God. Now, pastors are gifted differently, but you're gifted differently also. We are all ministers ministering for the Lord in this present and dark and horrible world that we live in today. But we are the, as you were, if you were in, in uh, CE hour, the keystone species. We're the species that lives in this world to be in the world but not of it, to rub shoulders and share Christ with the world and serve and love them. And most importantly, give them the gospel, right? Praise the Lord, someone gave you the gospel. We need to be doing the same thing. In this text, we are going to find that these men that he talked about here are men of servanthood, men of loving one another, encouraging one another, helping one another, enduring one another, if you will, in one sense. Timothy, who is this guy? Let's start out with Timothy. The fellow worker greets you. Timothy was from Laconia, city of Lystra, um, Derby in Asia Minor. You all know where that's at. Modern day Turkey. Born of a Jewish mother who had become a Christian believer and a Greek father. The Apostle Paul met him during his second missionary journey. Matter of fact, we'll find that if you would read the text in Acts, you'll find that after he was stoned to death, he then went to Lystra and Derby. So that was that uh, missionary journey. He became Paul's companion and missionary partner along with Silas. Now, if you remember, do you remember Paul and Silas in jail? Singing praises to the Lord. <clears throat> it's a good thing we have each other, is it not? This life is not an individual accomplishment. It's a group of people God has called together to serve Him together. He did with Timothy. Philippians chapter 2, verse 22 says, You know of his, Timothy's proven worth, that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. At this time, Timothy, or Paul was probably a quite lonely man, hated by most of the world. Remember, shipwrecked three times, beaten up, left for dead. All these things happened to him, and yet there was somebody that served him consistently. I will tell you, if you're, not, if you're a believer and you're not serving somebody, you're not in God's will. How many heard that? It's the truth. Every Christian is called to serve people. In a sense, and I'll know this is, although this is an office within the church that called a deacon, we are all deacons and deaconesses. We are all table waiters for other people. Paul also needed someone to serve him. Many people believe that the pastor is here to serve. Is he here to serve? Amen. But he is also to be served. We serve each other. 
We help each other. And this is what Timothy was for Paul. He commends and praises and gives thanks for Timothy twice in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, and chapter 16, verse 10 and 11, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And numerous times in his two letters of his fellow worker, how much he loved Timothy. Why? Because he cared for him. I, I will tell you this. To watch this church come together and start treating each other like brothers and sisters in Christ and loving each other is fantastic. I've been noticing they get together and you're, you're laughing with one another, weeping with another, loving one another. That's the church. That's what it looks like. Bearing one another's burdens. By the way, I want to say so much. Thank you so much for helping or for last week of um, encouraging me with cupcakes. I ate the last one yesterday. <laughs> what a joy to have you as a church um, have a graduation party. I thank you so very much and your help with the doctorate. All of you are part of that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I love every one of you. I truly do. That's what a church does. But a church doesn't just do that for their pastor, which I'm very thankful you did. But what about that guy that just got a promotion for doing his job with excellence? Amen? Praise the Lord for that man or that woman. We need to encourage them in that. Praise the Lord for them in that. You say, well, this service attitude and having to love people, which is really hard sometimes. True. <laughs> but we're called to serve, love, and witness. Some people think that's a chore. Do you know what Paul called it? Do you know what John called it? All joy. That's what John called it. Paul loved it. The whole book of Philippians and part of 1 Thessalonians is all about the joy he had seeing his young people grow up in the Lord and, and serve each other. John said in 1 John, I think it was, uh, I'm going to get the wrong passage, but in 1 John, I know that. <laughs> I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in truth. So many times, I really believe this, we try to find joy outside of serving others. We try to find joy in serving ourselves. How many understand that? Man, I, I'm not going to be... Well, let, let me, I will tell you, I'll, I'll give you it this way. I, I, had, I spent 10 years in Wisconsin. The cheese state. How many know where that's at? We lived literally 40 minutes from the Holy Sepulchre <laughs> called Packers Stadium. How many understand that? And I will tell you, you knew if the Packers lost or they were losing Sunday night in Sunday night service. Grumpy, angry, mad, and they hate everything pinstriped. How many understand? Their joy was all about emotions and a sports team. 
How ridiculous is that? We do the same thing. Our joy is always dependent and our emotions, by the way, we all have emotions. But our emotions control us. What if we had a biblical joy? One where it's not always emotions. By the way, God had emotions when He was on this earth. Jesus did what? He wept. Some would say, well, look at all these lists of people. Okay, that's nice, but what does that have to do with my walk with Christ? It's a good, fair question, is it not? And I think it has to do with the joy of serving others. Because all of these guys are serving others. It's not about themselves. It's not climbing the ladder. It's serving other people. By the way, everybody does that in your job. You're serving the Lord in your work, but you're also serving other people in your work. Therefore, as we've noticed in COVID, when no one's working, everybody's let down. True? Mrs. Anderson sitting in the back row there. Praise the Lord for her. She served me, which in turn was able to serve a bunch of cabinet people. How did that happen? I couldn't get cabinet glides. You don't know what a glide is? What you put in the drawers to shut and close doors? No one had them. The company I had can't get them. I couldn't find them. So Mrs. Anderson, she went to the hospital, and every single Home Depot, she stopped her in Minneapolis and came back and gave me like 60 of them. But it goes to show you many things. We're a whole community that serves each other and are reliant on each other. Amen? And when, when you do not produce your giftedness within this church, the church knows about it. For instance, I stopped leading songs. Everybody noticed that I couldn't do it. Someone else took the gavel. Amen? That's serving others. I don't agree with John Piper on some things, but one thing is true. He truly loves the Lord and has a high view of God. John Piper often said this, and I don't know that I agree with it wholeheartedly, but think about his joy. My dad is the happiest man I've ever known, he states. Okay, where does that joy come from? His father was a fundamentalist evangelist who traveled to speak at revival services hosted by local churches across the country. He was a Billy Graham, if you will, who ministered in smaller settings. He prayed and worked hard to make ends meet, and yet he was unashamedly happy, joyous about it. One time, John asked his father, Daddy, what would you say in a word is key to a lifetime of happiness? What would you say? To some people, it's to score a Boone and Crockett. To some people, it's landing a 30-plus inch walleye. <laughs> to some people, it's getting the greatest dress in the world. 
he didn't hesitate one bit. He said, to tell somebody about Jesus. Wow. By the way, how many have ever heard of Bob Jones University? How many have ever seen Bob Jones University? Right across the street from the main entrance of Bob Jones University is a church. That church building, it's a, I don't know if it's First Baptist Church or some Baptist church. That's where John and his father basically grew up in that church. John Piper did. Just imagine that. John Piper grew up across the road from Bob Jones. That's kind of weird. <laughs> Regardless, tell somebody about Jesus. That's what brought him joy. That was not the answer John expected, but he says it makes profound sense. Receive and overflow. That's what you've been made for. For receiving untold graces from God and then telling someone about those untold graces. Amen? How many of you love the Lord and what He's done for you? His mercy and His grace. How many have received God's mercy and grace in your life? Say amen. Well, tell somebody about it. That's all you got to do. How many of you remember getting that red bike when you were a little kid? One of the little tassels on it maybe, or you put a card in it. All the, and you're, whoa, look at me, look at me. Hey, look what Jesus did. That's more exciting than a bike. Amen. Evangelism is fraught with difficulties and natural resistances. The awkward moments, the strained interactions, and even harsh responses that we might get. But part of what makes evangelism so gratifying is the barriers and the hardships. When God gives us the wherewithal to express His Gospel with clarity, it is a spiritually rewarding experience even when our message is rejected outright. This is what Jesus did. He came to earth as man. He died on the cross for my sins. He was in the grave and He rose again and is preparing a place for me. How great a story is that? There is no greater story. There is no greater truth. The Minnesota Vikings could win a million Super Bowls and they would barely, it wouldn't even compare even close to the comparison of what Jesus Christ has done. Amen? What a great truth! Such is also the case with discipleship making. And perhaps even more, at least the attendant plant pains and trials can be even more difficult in the depth and duration of investment required in making disciples. Disciple making is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is a command by God to whom? To certain Christians. To all Christians. Amen? We are to be about the business of making disciples. How are we going to do that when we don't even talk about Christ at our workplace? How are we going to do that when we don't serve the Lord in our job? Disciple making. Fulfilling God's command. 
Jesus charges His church both to baptize and to teach. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is a one-time evangelistic event at the outset of the Christian life. While teaching them to observe all things is also commanded by God. Is it not? That means make disciples of them. Disciple means follower. Literally, philosophers in the Greek time had followers, people that just repeated them and followed them everywhere they went. Jesus Christ also had followers. He had 12, then 11. Then He passed away willingly on the cross for you and me. Both evangelism and discipleship have their difficulties. How many of you would agree it's hard? It is. But you know what? There is no greater reward than that. There is no greater joy than that. How many understand that? Man, I get, I get giddy. Not very often. But I do get giddy. When after Sunday school, I got people rushing the altar, uh, rushing the altar, yeah, rushing the pulpit. And they're like, Pastor Graham, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I'm like, Woo! Praise God, they're listening, they're learning. Praise the Lord, amen. Those joys are irreplaceable. When your child bowed their knee and put their trust in Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I, there was probably a tear coming down your face. But it wasn't a tear, tear of sadness, was it? It was tears of joy. Because that decision will last their entire life and will make them the person God wants them to be if they are discipled after that decision. Amen. Joys particular to discipling. God richly rewards the many costs of disciple making and also laces disciple making with remarkable joys, great, unbelievable joys, which make all the unavoidable costs worth it. God holds out unique pleasures when we empty ourselves at depth and length for the spiritual well-being of others. It, there is no greater joy when church family follow the Lord and are becoming disciples. But there's no greater heart-wrenching discouragement when you see people that have claimed the name of Christ follow the world and all of its stupidness. How many understand that? It's crushing. And immediately we look at it and say, what did we do wrong? How can we better disciple? Amen? How can we better do this? What are we doing wrong? We evaluate, because guess what? There's not a one perfect person in this room. Not one. How can we do better? 
What can we change in our curriculum or our teaching? And as long as it's Bible-based, go for it. Amen? As long as it's saturated in the Word of God, amen. Do not, do not, we will not, God willing, we will not bring the world into our church so that unbelievers feel comfortable. Church service needs to be uncomfortable for those who do not know or for those who are rejecting or falling in their faith. But God holds unique pleasures for us who empty ourselves. I never, I'll never forget the start of Northland Church. I'll never forget it. We were... Um, young and simple, and we're just going to do it. <laughs> How many understand that? It was unbelievable. What are we going to do for food? I have no idea. What are you going to do for a house? I have no earthly clue. What are you going to do? I, I don't know. We're just going to have a church. What does that mean? Did you follow the prescribed steps from the Baptist organization? Nope. <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> What are they? I, how do you do that? Do you know what you do? This is what God says. This is what we're going to do. This is what the text says. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're supposed to be doing. This is what we're going to do. Let the Word of God richly dwell in us and obey that text and watch God work. Amen. I tell you what, I'll never forget it. Growing, when we started the church, my wife and I were started on $300 a month. It was so bad, I remember my wife called and said, hey, we, the government, right? We need help. I don't know how to do this. What'd they say? Well, we're going to come take your kids. Okay, that shut that door, <laughs> right? And you know what? 20... One years later, the young people that are serving the Lord in all these different churches, the people within this church who truly love the Lord and are serving people, other people, praise God for what He's done. Amen? Despite the lowly people He's had to start this church. Amen? Those whom we disciple are not the enemies of our joy in Christ. They are an expression of the joys in Christ. In other words, I'll be honest with you, we should all have disciples. Should we not? If we believe in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, should we all have disciples? Yes or no? Absolutely. Who are you ministering to? Who are you helping? Who are you serving? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19-20 through 20 very clearly tell us Paul's heart. He says, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. In other words, Paul's saying this, I get giddy when I'm around you because I see the growth the Lord is growing in you. Amen? 
I praise the Lord for you. Naturally, we would not have expected him to say it like that. But what is Paul's hope or joy or crown of boasting at Jesus' coming? The Thessalonians are his glory and joy. How can this be? How is it not Christ? Because it's Christ in them that brings him great joy. Joy is found throughout. You can go 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, chapter 2, Acts chapter 17, 3 John verse 4. Real joy in Jesus grows and expands to draw others in. How many have ever heard there's joy in serving Jesus? That's not just a song. It's a way of life. It is our lives. How many were onward Christian soldiers? Why are we soldiers? We're fighting a spiritual battle, right? That spiritual battle is being lost when there are no disciples being made. When there's no service of Christians to others and loving others is happening. If those aren't happening, there is no onward Christian soldiers. It's we three mice. Right? Okay, I think I've made the point. True service of others. True service of, or true love for others. True service for others. True discipleship for others. There is no greater joy than those things. So here's the question. Why are we going around trying to find joy in anything else? I mean, for some of us, it's a Twix bar at the grocery store. There's something greater than that. And this passage of Scripture is that exactly. Look what the text says. Talked about Timothy. What was Timothy known for? Because he served who? Paul. This guy is useful. Why? Because Paul, I, I tell you what, I wouldn't want to be Paul. That guy went through hell. Someone needed to be there to help him. Someone needs to be there to cry with him, to encourage him, to laugh with him. Who was that guy? According to the text, it was Timothy. Timothy served him, loved him. What about this other guy named Lucas? How many know who Lucas is in this text? Well, how many want to know who Luke was? Luke may have been the na native of Cyrene, who was one of the prophets and teachers in Antioch, who under the direction of the Holy Spirit, first commissioned Paul and Barnabas. In Acts chapter 13, we have the same guy there, or one of the same names anyways. So, they... He commissioned Paul and Barnabas. Believe it or not, Paul didn't, wasn't birthed as a Bible Christian preacher. Amen? 
He was discipled. He went to Sahara Seminary. If you get my drift. He was discipled by other people and then commissioned by other people. They served Him. They taught Him. Judging from the name above, Lucius or Lucas, he could have either been a Jew or a Gentile. We're not sure. This Lucius of, of, of Romans chapter 12, it is important to understand that Luke, the author of Acts, and he also wrote the Gospel of what? Not a hard question. Luke. Yes. All right. Was traveling with Paul to Jerusalem, and Lucius mentioned in Romans 16 21 is at Corinth with Paul, who is about to leave for Jerusalem. But another Luke isn't mentioned in Paul's list of important believers sending greetings to the Roman church. This would be a major blunder on Paul's part unless Luke is Lucius. In other words, this is probably, in my opinion, we can't know for certain, the author, Luke. This is the guy. He's with him. <clears throat> Luke was with Paul when they came to Philippi. We also knew that Luke was with Paul when they left Corinth for Macedonia. Moreover, Origen. How many remember Origen? Early church pastor. Luke, he says this, Some say Lucas, Lucius is Lucas the evangelist, as indeed it is not uncommon to write names sometimes according to the original form, sometimes according to the Greek or Roman termination. In other words, in summary, Luke and Lucius are the same names. And Luke of Romans 16.21 must be the same person as Luke, the Gospel writer, because Lucius is the only Luke Paul mentions in his list of important believers who with him, who together, greet the Roman church. So, what did this guy do? Luke. Someone who encouraged, served, and loved Paul throughout his entire ministry. So we have two guys here. We have Timothy, who served Paul like a father. And we have Luke, who loved, encouraged, and served Paul throughout his whole ministry. He had someone by his side. Let me ask you, is there times in your life when you need somebody by your side? We all do. There's not a time in your life where you think, well, well, you might be a time, but it doesn't last very long that you think you've got this conquered and you can do it all by yourself. It doesn't work. We all need somebody. Amen? Jason and Sassipater, the Bible says, these two guys, as my kinsmen, probably indicating simply that they were fellow Jews, not necessarily relatives, but if Lucas was just mentioned as a Jew, or if he was a Jew, then Paul, this would be his kinsman as in related. But to be honest with you, this is where you have to input probably the, the one word, you, the one theological phrase you need to know more than anything else. I don't know for sure. Okay? Some of these things we just don't know. We're not sure. 
So don't base a whole theological system on it. Amen? So, who is this Jason? No doubt, Jason is probably Jason of Thessalonica who received Paul and Silas into his house. And when an uproar arose concerning them, was brought before the rulers of the city and gave security for them in Acts chapter 17. He's one of the first converts in Thessalonica who's named Jason and apparently hosted Paul in his home for a short time before the believers there sent Paul and Silas to Berea for their safety. In other words, did Jason serve Paul? Absolutely. Come on into my house. By the way, you say, well, what does that have to do with me? You know what? A couple of years ago, we had a, a, um, a group of singers that came through. I remember the coffees. You know, sometimes when we have that, there is, you, you will have a great time hosting them in your house as you've never had before. When my wife and I were young, grr. I just scored the 22 points I needed back. <laughs> we hosted college kids every single weekend, all summer long from Northland. They'd come down, they'd live with us. They were our kids. That We love them today. Still have great relationships with them. Your home is given to you by God. Use it for God. Amen? Have people over. How many have ever heard of that thing? Hey, why don't you come over for dinner today? Or why don't you come over for ice cream today? Everybody wants that right now, right? It's so hot outside. I will, I will invite you now. Why don't you come over to my house afterwards? My wife and I are planting garden. Well, maybe not so much. Oh, no, I am planting garden. I got it. <laughs> Regardless, we need each other. We love each other's company. Amen. We, these guys, Jason, served Paul and Silas in his house and then gave them security that they needed in town. Sopater, Sopater. We learn from Acts chapter 20, verse 4 and 6 that a man from Berea named Sopater, a shortened form of and this is where I get confused, Sosipater, it's just a short way of saying it, was among the companions of Paul who met him in Troas after he left Ephesus. Sosipater doubtless was among the Jews in Berea who were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scripture daily to see whether the things Paul had preached were so, and was among the many of them, therefore, that believed. Acts chapter 17. The fact that Jason and Sosipater mentioned in Acts were... <clears throat> were from neighboring towns that Paul visited in succession gives strong support to the view that they are the Jason and Sosipater mentioned in this text. And that they were close friends of Paul. But not only of Paul, but of each other. These were three friends or acquaintances of Paul who were fellow laborers in the gospel and indeed were church leaders in their own right likely as not appointed as shepherds to congregation. 
that Paul had started, he'd come in and he'd make one of the men a, a pastor, if you will. The text says that these men were what? Close to Paul's heart. They loved each other. They cared for each other. I will tell you this, I love it when someone comes into the shop, they say, Pastor, can we talk? Love to talk. We sit down and they just pour their heart out. And they, what can we do? What can I do about this? Or what does this mean? Or someone else comes into the shop and say, Hey, Pastor, how can I help you? You seem a little stressed today. But I've been in many legalistic churches. All they'll do is throw darts. <gasps> You've got a problem. You're a problem. And not, hey, how can I help you? How many understand the difference? Listen, who in here doesn't need help? We all do. That's why we're a church. These men were close to Paul's heart. I praise the Lord, I've got men that I call constantly because they're close to my heart. Do you have those men or women? You need to. You need to serve and you need to be served. The next one is Tertius. We do not know anything about Tertius except the Latin word meaning is the word third. Outside of the little we know from the Bible, basically what we know from the New Testament is that Tertius was a scribe for the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. He is the only scribe of Paul to be specifically named in Scriptures. Tertius added his own personal greeting at the end of Romans, specifically in verse 22. He says, I am greeting you, I, Tertius, the one having written this letter in the Lord. So he was the guy writing it down. Why does that happen? It's interesting that Paul in one of his letters says, I am actually writing in big letters. What does that have the idea of? That's why people believe that Paul's thorn in the flesh. How many remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? What was Paul's thorn in the flesh? It could have been his eyesight. That's why he had somebody else write as he dictated. And when he wrote, it was in big letters. Does that make sense? Now, do we know that? For dogmatic, sure. No. But it's a good possibility that that's why. But these scribes were important. Let me ask you then. Now, if Tertius is the one that wrote Romans, literally, then here's the deal. What if he would have failed or done a poor job at his job? Do we get it? The vocation that God has called us to is the vocation He's called us to. Work for the Lord and do the best you can. Amen. Tertius did. Praise the Lord. He didn't say, I'm not going to write this letter. I'd rather be an apostle. How many get that? Next one, Gaius. Gaius was a host to Paul as well as the whole church. Talk about servant. Probably referring to the congregation that met in his house because the book of Romans was written in Corinth. This Gaius almost certainly was among the many believers in Corinth who came to faith in Christ through the ministry of Paul. 
and one was, was one of the two men in that church who Paul had personally baptized. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that. He is generally thought to be Titius Justice, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue in Corinth. How lucky is that? So you can go to the synagogue and then go to church. The very next step. His full name would have been Gaius Titius Justus. Several men in the New Testament share the name Gaius. A common name in the first century. All of these men were involved in the ministry of the apostles in one way or another. In other words, they aren't necessarily the ones preaching. They aren't necessarily the ones teaching. They're the, necessarily the ones serving people. Everybody serves people. All Christians do. Later at the end of the third ministry journey, when Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans, he was staying in Gaius's house. And Gaius included his greeting to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 16, verse 23. The next one, Erastus. Erastus was a city treasurer of Corinth and therefore a man of prominence and high political office. Because his, his was such a common name, Erastus, and because there's no clear New Testament evidence to suggest otherwise, this Erastus probably was not the man mentioned in Acts 19.22 or in 2 Timothy 4 verse 20. Erastus was a co-worker of the Apostle Paul, a civil servant in Corinth, a believer in Jesus Christ. As the director of public works, we find in verse 23, Erastus would have been quite an event, uh, influential man. His duties likely included the upkeep of civil buildings and city streets, the collection of public revenue. In some cases, he even may have acted as a lawyer of sorts in public disputes. Erastus may have overseen the maintenance of Roman infrastructure such as aqueducts and sewers. But this man who had a job in the world served the Lord in that job. The apostle goes on, matter of fact, to be honest, you can look at it, Acts 8, 19, 20, 10, and verse 22, both of them talk about this. Es, Erastus was heavily involved in practical ministry and missionary work. How many have ever heard of the term vacation? How many times does our vacation eradicate our vocation? Are you following with me? God has called us to serve. Just because you're on vacation doesn't mean we don't serve. Amen? We are serving others in everyday life. All the time. Never do we wane. Erastus was that guy. Erastus regarded ministry as his top priority. He was a servant of the people. In reading history, these are some of the words that were brought about Erastus. In verse 13, we find maybe a little inkling of what Paul was talking about and why he even dealt with this. 
When you think of Romans 13, what do you think of? It's Christians serving the government, right? Why did he bring this up? Maybe it was Erastus. It says, for the rulers are not a cause for fear, for good or behavior, but for evil. Do not want, do you want to have, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise for the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on those who practice evil. We can see from Erastus' example that we too should hold continual service to Christ as our ultimate goal in life. Rich or poor, we can serve God cheerfully and faithfully in whatever position He grants us. The last guy. Never thought we'd get here after reading the first section, right? The last guy is Cordus. By the way, most pastors would just skip over all this stuff. I've seen it happen. We don't skip Scripture. If it's gone the next text, it's the next text. The last guy is Cordus. Romans chapter 16, verse 23 is addressed as the brother Cordus. He may... It may be there was another Cordus who wasn't a brother or who had a bad reputation because Cordus means fourth. He was the fourth child. It is common for Romans to name their children after numbers. Tertius means he was the third kid. There are many men called Primus, the first, Secondus, the second, in Roman literature. The birth name of Caesar Augustus, Octavius, do you know what his meaning was? The meaning of his name? How many remember Octavius? Octavius. He was the eighth kid. According to tradition, Cordus became bishop of Beirut. Think about that. Beirut, where's that? Okay. And converted many to Christ and suffered martyrdom. If this was true, Cordus was a gifted evangelist. Regardless, the scripture that we can use to understand who this guy was, he was my brother. We love each other. We might disagree with each other, but we love each other. And we serve each other. And we encourage each other. As these men were serving the Lord in the way God had gifted them, and they were, as we know, church isn't a one-man band, but is built up in love as each part does its work. Amen? Everybody's gifted differently. Not everybody is as hyper as Pastor Graf is. And some people get tired of hyperness. <laughs> I get it. We're all different. And God uses us different, and He has us serving different people for that very reason. As we know, we are not meant to hide our gifts under a bushel, Matthew chapter 5. We're not to bury them in the ground, Matthew chapter 25. Yet it can be difficult to know how to serve the Lord and how to use our gifts for Him. For me, the change came when I started looking to the Lord instead of to other people to show me how He wanted 
me to serve him. The Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hands? Rather than comparing ourselves with others or getting frustrated with the gifts that God has given you, we should start with what God has already given us. One of the very reasons I married my wife and I was drawn to her was her smile. Just her smile encourages my heart. That's her service to me. What is your service to somebody else? You say, well, God hasn't given me much. Okay, let's not bring God into it and think you got it all figured out. Because here's the deal. He took a measly five fishes and two loaves and fed a multitude. He uses what, you, what He gave you. Use it for His glory. Talking and praying with someone else about using our gifts for God can help. But the most important thing isn't so much our ability as it is our availability. Just serve. Just serve. The men in our verse all made themselves available to Christ and He used them in a vastly different way. As the Apostle said, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Listen, we've all been given grace by God. Amen? We've all been given a measure of grace. Don't complain that you have enough Use what you have. I'm remembering Matthew chapter 25. Do you remember 25? The guy with one talent, what did he do? Ooh, i got to save it, so I'm going to go bury it. Guy had five talents, he used them. What did God give him? Five more talents. The guy with ten talents, he used them. What did God give him? Eleven talents. You say, where did he get eleven? It doesn't say that. Oh, it does. Because the guy that buried it, he took his talent and gave it to the guy that had ten. Because he used them. You might have one talent, but you got the one gift. Use it. Use it. One of the gifts God has given to me is the preaching of the Word. I want to use it all my life. Until God takes it away. Because I love to express and explain the Word so it comes to life. You have been gifted also. Maybe not in that, but something else. Use it for God's glory because God commands you to do it. You've been created to do it. You've been imaged to do it. And lastly, here's the, here's the greatest part of all of this. It's a lot of fun! There's joy in it. How many of you want to be used by God? Say amen. 
You won't be used unless you use the gift God gave you. But use it. These guys did. And I will tell you, every one of these guys helped change the world upside down for Christ. Because these are the guys that served Paul. Who are you serving? Serving, yeah. Who are you serving? Who are you loving? If you can't come up with a name, you are out of God's word and His will. We're created to serve, love, and witness. Either God's a liar, or we're lazy. Mr. Gaiman, can you pray? Please stand, I'll close us in prayer, and we'll be dismissed this morning. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the list of men in today's text. And they were ordinary men who were devoted to you and committed to serving you by serving others. Father, help us to follow their example. In Jesus' name, amen.